dream to have beings created in his image and likeness to to fellowship with and to enjoy the same fellowship with him as Jesus, his son. But in order for that dream in the heart of God to be realized, sin had to be dealt with. And we see that Father God dealt with it, and he dealt with it ruthlessly, he dealt with it thoroughly, and he dealt with it finally in the person of his son and the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. Now, there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, a lot of people who believe in in Jesus dying on the cross for their sins and that their sins are forgiven. And and there are a lot of people who who are saved and there are a lot of preachers who preach salvation. But to be honest with you, don't really understand what it means to be saved, don't really understand um, what was involved in making salvation available to us. And that Jesus didn't just come to forgive us uh, for sin, but he came to take sin away. And to take it away means for it to never be a factor in um, your fellowship with God ever again. And so, um, to one last just connecting thought before we move forward tonight. Righteousness, or we could say it this way, right standing with God is necessary for us to have fellowship with Him. You, you can't have fellowship with God without right standing with God. And in order for there to be right standing with God, there had to be a payment made. And in order for there to be a payment made, there had to be punishment dealt with. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And he didn't halfway do it. He did it all the way. One sacrifice for all sin for all time is what Jesus did for you and for me. Praise God. And so we made this point multiple times last week. Sin consciousness is to functional oneness what sin was to positional oneness. So we are positionally one with God if we've been born again. But the positional oneness puts us in position to then be discipled by Jesus and learn how to function as one with God. And we've used different examples from the scriptures as to what that looks like. The main examples that we are given in scripture is marriage between a man and a woman. The covenant makes them one positionally. But then you got to learn how to function as one as husband and wife. So positional oneness is one thing. And it provides the foundation for the functional oneness. But the functional oneness is not automatic. In other words, it's something that has to be understood and dealt with. The other example in Scripture is that of the human body. One body, many members. And so we see then that you know, the hand is a great way of... Ex- you know, All of my five fingers are positioned on my hand. Amen. They all are slightly different. They all have a slightly different purpose, but they work together. And, and, and again, that's another example of positional oneness, position on the same hand, but then functioning, working together. Now, we've talked about sin consciousness, and that's really what the Holy Spirit has dialed us in on the last few weeks. And I want to simplify some terminology for you tonight, not to try to dumb it down, but just to make it more understandable so then we can build up from there. And when we are talking about sin consciousness, 
what we're really talking about is shame. Now, we could talk about shame's first cousins, guilt and condemnation. Okay, Shame, guilt, and condemnation, all are related. All are a result of sin. But then we also see that fear becomes a factor because of the shame. And I want to show you this in the scriptures this evening. So let's begin at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse number 8. And this is, of course, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit that God told them not to eat. And as was, I believe, the pattern, um, Father came down in the cool of the day to fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so on this day, though, something's changed. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, Adam went from fellowshipping with God to hiding from him. And sin did that. Adam went from fellowshipping with God, visiting with God, hanging out with God, younger generation might say, chilling with God. Amen. But he's not hanging out with him anymore. He's hiding from him now. And sin did that. So sin severed, cut, Adam's positional oneness with God. That's what God was asking when he said, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He was asking that question for Adam's benefit, but he's also asking it for your benefit and for mine because Adam had vacated his position, his position of being one with God, his position of of cooperating together with God. And the same sin that severed Adam's positional oneness also torpedoed his and our functional oneness By introducing the human race to shame. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but as an example of Adam, because remember, created in the image and likeness of God, God said, let us make man in our image. So we know that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he used plural pronouns. And when he created Adam, when he created mankind, he created us, spirit, soul, and body. But when they said, let's create uh, man in our image and after our likeness, that means he created us to look like he looks, but also to function the way he functions. How How does God function? He functions in oneness. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are positionally one with one another, and they function as one with one another. And when God created Adam, He created Adam to be positionally one like us. Amen? Like us. Positionally one with God. And then also to function as one with God. And a classic example of Adam functioning as one with God would be Adam naming all the animals. Functioning as one with God, he was able to name all the animals. Separated from his positional one with God, oneness with God, no longer functioning as one with God, he's not even smart enough to make himself permanent clothes. He made clothes out of leaves. Now, I want you to pay close attention to what he said. Adam said, I hid myself because I was afraid when I heard your voice. And I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was ashamed. Now, compare this, though, to how Adam and Eve were before they sinned. Before they sinned, when they're positionally one with God, positionally one with one another, functioning as one with God, functioning in oneness with one another, the Bible says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There's there's no shame here. There's no guilt here. There's There's no condemnation here. Which means there is fellowship here. There is both positional and functional oneness. Now it's very easy for us to talk about how the sin severed the positional oneness. Sin separates from God. Sin separates from God. This is why sin brings death. Sin brings separation. That's why sin brings death. To be separated from the source of life is what, is what brings the death. But sometimes I think we, we, we overlook the shame that came as a result of the sin. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Naked means more than without clothes. This word naked, I want you to think exposed. They were exposed. They were vulnerable. They were without covering. We were never meant to exist on this planet exposed. We were never meant to exist on this planet uh, without covering. We were never meant to exist on this planet vulnerable. We were meant to exist on this planet covered by the hand of the Almighty, in the shadow of the Almighty. We were meant to be one with Him positionally and to function uh, with Him uh, uh, as one with Him. As I say over and over again, He didn't create you because He was looking for something or somebody else to rule over. He created you because He wanted you to experience what He experiences and allow you to rule through Him. That cooperation, that co-laboring, that, that synergy that we talk about that, that is a product of fellowship. I want to go back to it now. This is important. I hid myself because I was afraid when I heard your voice. Man, this is a problem. If God's desire is to have fellowship with you and me and we hide from Him when we hear His voice, God's got a problem. We don't... It's, again... Remember, he has forgiven your iniquity for his sake. See, we think, no, we, we got a problem. God doesn't have a problem. No, we've got a problem, and, and our problem now has created a problem for God because God's desire is to have fellowship with you and me, and now at the sound of his voice makes us run and hide from him. It's a problem. 
And the reason I'm spending a minute or two here on this is because this is the problem that Jesus came to solve both for you and me and for God. Jesus came to fix this for us and he came to fix it for God. But the only way he could fix it is to, is to do away with the sin that caused it. I hid myself because I was afraid when I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was ashamed. Let me say it another way. I was afraid because I was aware of my sin. I was sin conscious. Shame and sin consciousness are in essence the same thing. Guilt and condemnation, again, in essence the same thing. So do you see the pattern? First sin, then shame, then fear. He said, I was, I was, uh, let's go back to it. I hid myself because I was afraid when I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was ashamed. Let me give you the verse again, right? Here it is right here. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, naked and ashamed. I was naked and I hid myself. So do you see the pattern? First the sin, then the shame, then the fear. Now I want you to notice their response to shame. They're exposed, they're vulnerable, and they try to cover themselves but they try to cover themselves with their own ability. They realize that they're exposed. They realize that they're uh, ashamed. And so now they're, they're trying to provide uh, themselves a covering. They're, they're trying to, to, to figure this out. And so obviously they tried to cover themselves physically with, 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 with leaves and, 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 and hide in the trees, if you will. But they're, they also, um, because that... You know, a security blanket is nothing more than a piece of material, right? Amen. In other words, it, it may give you that sense of security, but it's a false sense of security. It's, it's, you're still exposed, in other words. You're still, you're still vulnerable, whether your foot's hanging out from under the covers or not. That's, that's rooted into us from that. Especially as, as children, hopefully we've outgrown that. Amen. But notice how, how else they tried to cover themselves. They tried to, they tried to cover themselves by blaming they tried to make themselves look better by making somebody else look worse. Think about it. The man God created in his image and likeness of fellowship is now hiding from him. Now, this may sound like a, a weird statement. If, you may not understand it unless you've ever been a landlord. A landlord rarely hears from a renter who is behind on their rent. Brother Jerry taught me that. I'm out of the landlord business, at least Pam and I. We, we sold our rental properties. The church still has some that I help manage. And, of course, Brother Jerry and others helped me do that as well, Marcos. But the first time somebody got behind on rent with Pam and I, Brother Jerry said, well, you've got to look on the bright side. You won't be hearing them from them to come fix something. Why not? Because they're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And you say, what are you talking about that for, Pastor Mark? Because the same thing carries over into our fellowship with God. See, Adam used to hear the sound of the Lord God coming in the cool of the day. He would run to meet him. I mean, if he ever hid, he was just hiding to play a game with him and jump out. and Hey, God, got you, tag, you're it, you know. That playfulness, that fun, right? That's gone now. 
Uh-uh, he hears God coming now. He doesn't run to meet him. He runs to hide from him. He's not fellowshipping with him anymore. He's hiding from him. And sin did it. And if it's ever going to change, sin is going to have to be dealt with. Now, Jesus has taken care of the sin and reestablished our oneness and fellowship with God. That's positional oneness. Jesus has done that for you. If you've been born again, you have been reestablished. The word, the biblical word is reconciliation or reconciled. You have, by the death of Jesus, by the death of God's son Jesus, you have been reestablished into oneness and fellowship with God. That's positional oneness. But watch this now. The sin is gone, but for far too many, the shame and the fear it creates lingers and continues to interfere with our functional oneness with God. The sin's gone, but because we're not aware of it, we still are more aware of our sin that we were than we are aware of the righteousness that we've been made. We still respond to God as if we still need to hide from Him. As if we still need to be reluctant to ask Him for anything. And that if we do ask Him for anything, we think we got to cage it with some kind of, I'll never ask you to do anything else for me if you do this. Or like we're trying to, you know, He's reluctant and we're trying to get Him to do something because we feel so unworthy, we feel so ashamed, we feel so guilty, we still feel so condemned. So do you see now why Father desires to purge from you and me, not just our sin, but our consciousness of it? Do you see now why the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you see now why the Bible says if your own heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and He no longer condemns you as His child? Got to go back to it. The sin is gone. But for far too many, the shame and the fear, it creates lingers. What was that? What was that song? Mm-hmm. The sin is gone, baby. Come on, now, sin's gone. The thrill is gone, right? Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna rewrite that one, Amen. The sin is gone. Now, notice it. It sin. Remember the pattern: sin, then shame, then fear. Sin's gone, but the fear that was produced by the shame still affects the functional oneness, the fellowship that Father desires to have with us. Now, we ended last week taking a look at what it means for Jesus to be one sacrifice for all sin for all time. And if you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, there's nothing that can ever reverse that. Our righteousness was purchased with an eternal sacrifice that provided eternal redemption and eternal salvation. And that's not my opinion. I'm quoting uh, lines and words and phrases directly from scriptures that we'll get to. If not tonight, we will in, in the days ahead. How about this one? Romans chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. I want to give it to you in the New King James, and I want to give it to you in the Amplified. For the death that he died, speaking of Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
reckon. That's something you do with your mind. It has to do with your thinking. It's one thing to have died to sin yourself. It's another thing to reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. Now listen to this from the Amplified. It says, For by the death he died, he died to sin, ending his relation to it once for all. And the life that he lives, he is living to God in unbroken fellowship with him. Even so, consider yourselves also dead to sin and your relation to it broken, but alive to God, living in unbroken fellowship with him in Christ Jesus. Come on now, that's you and me, right? Why did Jesus do what he did? He did what he did where sin was concerned so that we could live in unbroken fellowship with the Father. What breaks fellowship? Sin breaks fellowship. What's, what, what, the, remember you said the opposite to fellowship is separation from God. So once and for all, do you see that? So when it says once and for all, we're talking about once and for all sin past, present, and future, and we're talking about once and for all people, past, present, and future. Jesus is one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. When Jesus paid for your sin, he paid for it all. He paid for it all. Okay? Now, we use this simple example. I want to build on it. I kind of rushed through it last week, and, and I told you I was going to jump on it again tonight, and, and so here we are, okay? Imagine for a moment that you're, you have a mortgage. You, you own a house, and let's just use round numbers. You have a, you have a $100,000 mortgage on your house, and, um, and you still owe 85000 on it, and, and you've, you're behind six months payment, and the bank is wanting to come and take your house from you. So you're behind. And, the, and so now someone comes and, and they graciously and kindly, they pay those six months that you owed and were behind. They got you current. But they did not take away your mortgage. The only way that they could take away your mortgage is if they paid all the payments, the past due payments, the current payment, and any future payment that, that would have been uh, owed or need to be paid. If the past and the present and the future payments are all made, then the mortgage has been taken away. It's no longer a factor. Remember, Jesus didn't come to simply pay for the sin that you committed up until the point that you asked him to forgive you. He came to take away all of your sin, past, present, and future. That's good news right there. Okay, let's say this. I've heard, of, I've heard of things like this. I've heard of companies forgiving debt. So let's just say that the bank says, look, you know, you've been a good customer. You've paid really well, COVID, blah, whatever. You know. So the bank says, you know, we're, we're going to do you a solid, and, um, and, and uh, we're just going to forgive you the, those six payments that you missed. Okay? That'd be good, right? But you've still got a mortgage. Even if what, even if what you're behind on uh, from the past, right, is, is forgiven and done away with, right, you, you still have a debt to pay. Now, if the debt is paid in full, all back payments are covered, any present payment is covered, and all future payments are covered. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. The Bible says he took away our sin. Compare that to someone taking away your mortgage. In order to remove the mortgage altogether, every payment, past, present, and future, would have to be paid. 
Making back payments does not take away your mortgage any more than the bank forgiving you for past due uh, uh, payments uh, would do away or take away your mortgage. But now here, I want to build on this because let's, let's, let's take this a step further. So imagine for a moment that, that you were in that position and someone made every payment. Someone made all the past payments, someone made all the present payments, and someone made all the future payments for you, but you didn't know they made them. You didn't realize that they made them. No one informed you that those payments were already made. Notice then, what what would you do? You would continue to worry, perhaps, stress out over, struggle, uh, and, and keep records of those payments like they're still owed. And this is exactly where so many people in the body of Christ are today. Jesus has taken away your sin. He's paid for it past, present, and future. But nobody's ever explained that to so many people. And so we still uh, respond to God as if we owe Him a debt. We still respond to God like we're six months past due on our sin. So if you maintain a mortgage consciousness... After the debt has been paid in full and taken away, you will continue to think, feel, and act as if the mortgage still exists. And if you maintain a sin consciousness after the debt has been paid in full and taken away, you will continue to think, feel, and act as if the sin still exists. So when we say Jesus is one sacrifice for all sin for all time, we're literally saying that he was one payment for all payments for all time. Jesus' payment for your sin was one payment for all payments for all time. Now I want you to compare one payment for all payments for all time to the former system of animal sacrifices. Because the animal payment was for any sin debt owed at the precise moment the animal was offered. If sin was committed and debt accrued after the animal payment was made in the Old Testament, the animal had to be offered again, and then again, and then again, and then again. And that is the mindset towards sin that so many people have as New Testament believers. They still have this Old Testament mentality about the payment for sin that, that they had when they were offering animal sacrifices for sin in the sense that they only think in terms of Jesus making the back payments and getting them current, but telling them now try to do better moving forward and, and don't accrue any more debt. And if you keep doing this, I'm going to stop paying That's what religion will tell you, right? If you just keep on doing this, you're going to reach a point where I'm not going to pay for it anymore and you're just going to be on your own and you're going to be on your way back to hell just like you were before. That is not our Savior. That is not His attitude. All right, um, let me give you some verses here. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. Speaking of Jesus and having been perfected, talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. Having been perfected, he became the author of temporary salvation to all who obey him. Is that what it says? Does it say temporary? No, it says eternal. Oh, so Pastor Mark, you you believe in eternal salvation. No, I believe the Bible. Well, you know, it just just don't, don't make sense to me. 
Lord shared something with me early this morning. He, he said, he reminded me, impressed upon me that, that verse in the Bible where it says, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Some translations say, beyond our wildest imaginations, what God is able to do. He said, the context for that verse is my grace. In other words, we, we try to take that and think, well, you know, I mean, God creates the universe, of course. He can, do, he can do this, He can do that, He can do this. But see, what God is saying here is, if, if we're just going to look at that and say, okay, He's God and so He can create planets, or He's God and He can create galaxies, or He's, he's God and He can create a human being, and he, yes, amen, He can do exceedingly above all that we can ask, think, or imagine. But have you ever stopped to consider that when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to the grace that He has extended to you, it's not rational grace, my friend, it is amazing grace. Amazing grace means it is amazing when you begin to understand just exactly what it is that He's done, and just exactly what it is that He's given to you. The God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask think or imagine is the God who sent his son to be one sacrifice for all sin for all time for all people he took it away why it's because he didn't want on again off again with you he had that with the nation of Israel and he loathed it he loved them but he loathed he he did not enjoy fellowship with them there were certain people within the Israeli nation, yes, but as a whole. I mean, even when, it, even when it, back in the days of Noah, the Bible says God was like, man, why did I ever do this again? Why in the world? I mean, you realize one of the greatest problems God has had that we know of is, is seemingly everything he creates rebels against him. Angels rebel against him. Man rebels against him. You don't have to believe this to go to heaven, but I believe that, that there were things happening on this earth and, and, and the flood of Noah wasn't the first flood. Seems like everything God does rebels against him. And he was, I mean, he was ready just to do away with it all, repented that he even made us. But Noah, Noah found favor. He's like, you know what, I, for Noah's sake, you know, I'm not just going to put an end to this. And you don't have to, again, you don't have to believe this go to heaven. I'm just trying to, you know, but what about them dinosaurs? What about them cavemen? I believe that they were folks all before Adam. You don't have to believe that again, but is there a purpose for this earth after this current purpose expires? Is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth? Yeah. So why, why is it so hard for us to believe that there was an old heaven and, a, and an old earth? And that something was going on on this planet before God said, okay, let's do it one more time. But this time we're going to make them in our image and likeness. I, I rarely speak on that. and I'm not sure why I did it right then, but somebody pulled that out of me. So he's, after Jesus was perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Look at this in Isaiah 45, 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. And notice what it says, you shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. See, the only way you can do away with the shame is if you do away with the sin. You've got to get rid of the cause if you want to get rid of the effect. 
So why is it, why did it have to be um, everlasting salvation? It had to be everlasting salvation if it was going to be everlasting no shame. Hebrews 9 and 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption speaks of the price paid to redeem one either enslaved or imprisoned. It's payment made to secure a release from. So if someone was in prison and given a sentence, then someone could come and pay whatever their fines were, so to speak, and secure their release from prison. Or someone was enslaved and and someone could come and they could make a payment to secure their release from slavery. We were enslaved by sin and we were held prisoner to sin. You follow what I'm saying? We were both. And the payment that Jesus made to secure our release wasn't a temporary payment. A temporary payment would mean a payment that was made that would only last a certain amount of time but would expire are you following what I'm saying? Jesus didn't make a temporary redemption payment. He made an eternal redemption payment. Now look, let's look at it in, in Daniel 9 and 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to finish it, to end it, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So he's talking about reconciliation for iniquity and everlasting righteousness, to finish the transgression, to, to bring an end to it, to take it away, to make us right with God, before God, in the eyes of God, in a permanent Situation. I'm showing you this from the old and the new because I'm, I'm wanting you to see that, that this was God's plan. He, his prophets spoke of the day when we would receive eternal reconciliation, everlasting reconciliation. And that reconciliation would be made for iniquity. In, in other words, iniquity is the, I guess you could say the worst kind of sin in the sense that iniquity is willful disobedience. It's when you know it's wrong and you do it anyway. Hebrews 7 and 27, speaking of Jesus, Jesus does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself. Wow. I want to show you this last slide, and this is where we will be next time we're together on Wednesday night. These are very important 
salvation words. And I have them before you tonight with the numbers in what would seem like what ascending order instead of what we're used to descending order is because we see that propitiation is necessary for redemption. Redemption is necessary for justification and then justification is necessary for reconciliation. Propitiation means to appease the wrath of God on account of sin. Sin requires punishment. And we all sinned and we all deserve punishment. And the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is death. The problem Father found himself in is he didn't want us to die. But he's got to be a just God. He can't just pretend like we didn't sin. So what is he going to do? How is this punishment going to be handed down? Jesus said, I'll take the bullet for him. Jesus said, I will appease the wrath of God on account of sin for them. All kinds of verses. We'll get to them next, next time. Not next week, but week after. Then we have redemption. Redemption is a release secured by the payment of a debt or ransom. Think prisoner or slave. Temporary redemption means the payment only secures a temporary release. We have not been temporarily released. Temporarily released. We have not been temporarily released from enslavement to sin. We've been permanently released. Jesus said, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. But if, the, if, the, if Jesus makes you a son of God, a son will abide in the Father's house forever. John chapter 8. Redemption. Now, praise God. Justification means to make righteous. To declare one innocent of all charges Justification has the root word justify, justified, and it literally means just as if I had never sinned. But notice now, let, let, me, let me try to say it this way. Father didn't just wave his hand over you and say, okay, it's all done. No more sin. Poof, gone. Sin be gone, and it's gone. No, that's not what he did. He wouldn't be just to do that. What he's ultimately wanting from you and me is for us to be reestablished in oneness and fellowship with Him. That's reconciliation. You can't be reconciled if you're not justified. You, got, you've got, you have to be justified in order to be reestablished in oneness and fellowship with God. Okay? You, are you seeing this? But you can't be justified unless you're redeemed. But you can't be redeemed unless we do something about that wrath that was on all of us. And we deserved it. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and took the wrath. That's what the word propitiation means. And the Bible says he didn't just do it for you and me. He did it for the sins of the entire world. One sacrifice for all sin for all time. That's propitiation. But because he took the wrath, now we've dealt with the wrath. So what are we going to do next? Now we're going to pay for the sin. And so he paid for the sin with his own life, with his own blood. He became your sin, 
and nailed it to the cross. Are you seeing this? That's redemption. He paid for, and it's eternal redemption. Not to, eternal redemption. <sighs> Get excited about that. But now that the payment's been made, he can legally say, I declare Connor innocent of all charges. I have made him just as right before me in my eyes as my son Jesus. See? See? Now? Now that we've been made right with God in the eyes of God before God, we can be reestablished in oneness and fellowship with him. So it's not propitiation for, for propitiation's sake. It's propitiation for redemption's sake. It's not redemption for redemption's sake. It's redemption for justification's sake. It's not justification's sake for justification's sake so that you can get your justification badge and show it to the world. No, it's justification for reconciliation's sake. Reestablished in oneness and fellowship with God. Stand with me. Praise God. All right, we're going to go back through that and, and look at it in a little greater detail, especially the redemption part. Are you getting anything out of this tonight? Do you see why it had to be a salvation that dealt with the sin and the shame? One that would take away the sin and purge the very consciousness of sin. Anything less than that would leave us in a position where Oneness and fellowship with God was still out of reach. All right? When we, with the help of the Holy Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, when we realize, when we become aware, when we become conscious, righteousness, consciousness, right? That the sin is gone. Sin is gone. Somebody needs to hear this, so I appreciate another minute or two. Sin is gone. Stop thinking of sin as a verb, something you do, and think of sin as a noun. It's a thing. Of all the times sin is mentioned in the book of Romans, only a few times is it a verb. It's talking about something you do. It's talking about sin. It's talking about the body of sin. It's talking about um, just sin itself as, as an entity. Amen. That's what Jesus did away with. Did away with it. Not talking about a verb, talking about a noun. Not talking about something you do, something you were. We were sinners, but we are no longer sinners. Just like we were darkness, but we're no longer darkness. All right. So now watch this. The grip of fear has a root in the grip of shame, and the grip of shame has a root in the grip of sin. The grip of sin's been broken. <laughs> I'm going to say it strong. Can I say it strong? Shame is nothing more than a figment of your imagination. The only reason, the only valid reason anyone that's been washed in the blood of Jesus is still ashamed is because the devil's duping you. <laughs> There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's gone. You're a new creation. Amen. Father, thank you for your love. I pray that everything we touch Father, today, tomorrow, the rest of this week will prosper for your glory. I ask that you continue to reveal yourself to us in, in real and meaningful, even personalized ways. Father, like you, you, you know our 
favorite color. You, Lord, little things that you know about us, Father, that you just bless us with and, and just confirm, Father, your, your presence in our lives. I just ask you to do that for my brothers and sisters. You're a reward of those who diligently seek you. Thank you for rewarding us with your presence and your love and your wisdom and understanding tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here. Know that you're loved. Good things coming. We'll see you Sunday. If you can help tomorrow, we'd love to see you in the morning. It'll be a great time of fellowship together as we work together. Blessings to you and yours. Amen.